Hello and welcome to Q&A Quest episode 265. I'm your host, Mike, always tardy to things, apps, and with me as always. Not about to trust my co-host to have gotten that number. Oh, it's totally correct. Totally correct. It does appear to Maybe. be correct. Mm -hmm. The last one you put up is two sixty four. And shed inside his apartment for the foreseeable future, your man in Japan, Gaiji Minogatari. Yay, Sorry. not yay. Yay. Yay, yay. Uh, not yay for the foreseeable future. Yeah. <sighs> so, have you had any chance to play games while taking care of sick family? Um, mostly in the evenings, and I've been playing Atelier Maruru, so... Um, I forgot how quickly the classical ateliers actually go. Um, <laughs> since they're not usually beholden to anything like normal plot development. So I, I'm closing in on the start of year three on this game already. Nice. Yeah. How many Arlen games in with that? That was, this is the third one, and mm. until recently, the last one. So we just—I'm yeah, then... I'm, going to try Lulua eventually. Yeah. See, people seem to like that one. Yep. Not one of the ones I've heard over much about. But I mean, eventually, I'm going to actually get through all of the games I can reasonably access at this point. So. Mm -hmm. I figure there's no way I'm going to be playing Atelier for two or Atelier of Crone anytime soon since I don't even have workable consoles to play those on. Um, what ones are those for? Well, Fatari, uh, see, um, Atelier for Two was the Wonderswan mm -hmm. Color game. Oh! Aside from being incredibly hard to get a hold of because anything that was not a standard cash grab, um, like, anime tie-in game was very rare for that system, um, mm -hmm. my cop, my Wonder Swan has not actually functioned for over a decade. <laughs> well, that's yeah, a problem. There's, there's a place nearby sure here why, that sells Wonder has... Swans, but I think they actually go to the trouble of making sure they still work. Thankfully. Yeah. So, um, yeah, most likely I will never ever have a chance to play that one. And then Atelier El Crone was the Otome game for PlayStation Portable. Uh, uh, made in cooperation with Compile. Oh. And, uh, oh, no, 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 don't need to be quite so cautious here, because if there's one thing that Compile Heart actually does well, it is Otome games. That's probably where well, a lot sure, of them come from. those don't require that much actual development. Yeah, that's where, that's, that was our original focus, and, yeah, the uh, RPG stuff came a little later, and it's generally accepted that their Otome games were a lot better done. Yeah, so. I could believe it. It was like uh, Gust and Compile Heart collaborating on that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in seeing how it works, but I don't have a PlayStation Portable, never have. It's fascinating to think of Compile Heart as an Otome game developer, given how much that their, uh, their current branding ends up like devolving into fan service aimed at dudes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious where they got their start. Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, well, God rest the soul of the original compile. Um, 
Yeah, it does, it does feel weird every time I look at it. I'm like, they made a fourth Arlen game, and they made a fourth Mysterious game, and they have not made a fourth Dust game. Don't know what happened. Monsters. There. Truly. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I assume Matador is going pretty well. Sounded like it anyway. Uh, what else? What have you been playing? Uh, I've been playing a lot of Dot Hack, and I just reached the point sure. where a thing happens to a, a character who I was growing quite fond of. And I'm mm, not to happy about which it. Which thing you might be talking about? Um. Well, I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that another character goes into a coma, considering that's oh, a major yeah, plot point one. at the beginning yeah, of the series. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. That hurts. And the writing and performances on that whole scene were like fucking brutal. <laughs> So that one, that one hurts. Yeah. In a good way, or a bad way, or a B movie way. No, in a this is really heartbreaking way. Oh, okay. Cause, yeah, like that's. Yeah. Okay. It's like, oh, I've gotten to the point where, oh, this character's gonna be with me the rest of this game. This is cool. Like, I really like this character. This and character's then, grown on me a lot because yeah. they're like a background character in one. Yeah. And their their characterization in one is very deliberately like very flat so that when two comes around the game can kind of sucker punch you with oh this is like actually a fully fleshed out person right it sucker punches you again yeah and i was even like in denial a bit like oh maybe you know this will be resolved somehow and then look doing going through the forum updates and the news updates and it's like oh there's a woman who looks very much like this character has entered a coma while playing the game. Fuck. <laughs> Fun fact, that character will never leave your friends list. They will always appear online. <laughs> and uh, if you try to invite them into a party, I say I was just going to say it very like, solemnly say they're a lost one. Oof. You do, you, you know, you get them back when part three's over. <laughs> Great. But yeah, I'm... <laughs> And other weird things are starting to happen in the game, so I'm we'll probably be binging that a lot over this weekend. So, going to be a lot of that. Other than that, um, Monster Hunter Sunbreak is out, so I've been grinding that on PC and Switch. So, uh, I don't have much to say about that other than it's it's more Monster Hunter Rise, which is a very good thing. I incredulously sent Wheels a message while we were waiting to start this, asking if he was playing Monster Hunter while podcasting. Sure was. Was trying. So a lot of I, I won't take much, too much time at this, but a lot of like higher rank weapons in Monster Hunter games require that you go like up a tree. So that includes like the the new weapons added here in Master Rank. So. Uh, I found a weapon I wanted to get and had to grind through some uh, lower rank versions of the same monster to get up to the point where I could make the newer version of the weapon. So I was doing that while podcasting because it's pretty brainless. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm uh, loving your dream. But yeah, it's a it's a really good expansion. Uh, again, much better than World and World's expansion, which um, I know people like really love World. It got a lot more people in the series, but those games finally cleaned up much of the tedium of Monster Hunter and then decided, hey, let's throw a bunch of brand new tedium on top instead. <laughs> and it still annoys the hell out of me. Did you see uh, the numbers on Rise now, then? Yes. Is it like 10 million copies and the expansion yeah, already sold. sold like 3 million? Yeah, some horrifying number. Yeah. Is uh, an impressive thing given that uh, it's on fewer platforms. Yes. And w was that Switch and PC, or was that just Switch? Uh, Switch and PC, but I'd be willing to wager that like the vast majority of those are Switch sales, just by virtue of the numbers of both uh, the kind the kind of uh, well, one Japan, but also. Uh, mm -hmm. the fact that uh, a lot of Steam sales concentrate in the handful of users. I forget what the actual number is, but it's something like 1% of owner uh, of Steam uh, registered Steam users own like 50% of Steam games. <laughs> like wow. it's one of those things where it's like the, the number of people who, uh, who have Steam accounts is like that you know tons of people have inactive ones or like uh -huh. don't buy a lot of games so it's one of those things where it's like it's very hard to tell without uh like i, I would guess that probably at least 60 to 70 percent of those are switch sales but, yeah so it's uh it's done pretty wild numbers um Sweet. let's see uh and me, what have I been doing? I played some more Mega Man. Yeah. Uh, I finished the first Star Force game. Uh, that's, a, that's, that's a cute enough RPG. It's kind of... Uh, you know, Star Force was clearly designed conceptually as we're going to do more Battle Network, but we're afraid that people won't buy a Battle Network 7 because that number is too high. Uh, and like the thing that's a little sad about Star Force is that its best aspects are the parts where it's forging a unique identity like the like core thrust of the plot is pretty like for given the kind of game it is it's pretty entertaining the uh like some of the, the the newer stuff tends to be interesting, but like a lot of stuff is, uh, so like the bat, but other stuff is just like we've taken uh, battle network systems and simplified them to make them more approachable, and in doing so have generally made a less interesting system. Uh, like that, I don't dislike. Yeah, it can be. Uh, in in Star Force's case, like the, that comes down to the combat 
is not bad, but it has been simplified because it's the situation where there's only three places for Mega Man to be at any given point, and in order to allow him to deal with attacks that would otherwise be undodgeable, you know, as a shield, uh, he can bring up. But it's, it's you know, it, it makes it so there's a lot less of a positional aspect to the battle system, and that can be a bit less interesting. Uh, there are there's much less of an emphasis on being able to just uh, root around for uh, ports to jack into like there was in uh, Battle Network. Now there is you, you can because uh, like the entire thing is like uh, aliens made out of radio waves, and so you're like beaming into things but like you can only do that after you've already entered like the dungeon area so like it's less encouraging to root around for things because like it's kind of a pain to actually get to them which isn't like the most fun thing in the world because uh the other thing is that because of the way the game's laid out most of the dungeon areas are essentially floating above like their walkways floating above the normal areas uh and that makes hmm. them actually more confusing to navigate rather than less because there's a lot more visual background information that's distracting how pathways connect. Hmm. Uh, the proper the proper dungeons that exist uh, are more like Battle Network dungeons, and those work fine. Although they they did that thing uh, where it's like, well, this is on DS now, so it needs to have stuff that is specific to the DS. Uh, to justify the fact that it's a DS game. So there are touchscreen minigames in a lot of them, and those aren't great, but, like, the single... Like, the, the grand prize for the worst dungeon gimmick they came up with is there is a dungeon late in the game where you have to... Uh, so you have to play a hot and cold minigame in an area where mm -hmm. there are both random battles and every about 10 seconds, uh, environmental hazards start raining around on you. And the hot and cold mechanic is super unreliable. So that section sucks. That section is terrible. Uh, and I'm being, and I'm coming off very negative, and I'm not uh, actually sour on this game. I thought this game was actually pretty good, but it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you, you could have done more. Um... I guess the way I would describe it is that uh, it's been simplified to a level similar to Battle Network 1, but the problem with Battle Network 1 was uh, that it lacks systems. There's the So you have the stand-ins for battle chips. They're called cards now, they're just battle chips. They're the same thing, doesn't matter. But uh, there's no other meaningful customization to Mega Man. You can find... Uh, you can find uh, things that increase your. Uh, you can find things that increase your max HP. Those are just scattered all over. There's no, uh, but there's there's no reward. For, you don't get them from combat. Get it from combat or anything. But the the bigger thing is, uh, you have a the the thing that's supposed to be your defining aspect of customization is that you know you can actually equip weapons with this problem is, uh, and, and the, the weapons are supposed to be designed such that, like, there is no one best weapon in the game. There's a bunch of different ones. Uh, there's a bunch of ones that have differing benefits. The problem is that, for the most part, 
they they aren't defined enough. There's not enough benefit to picking one with lower stats. So what you end up what ended up happening is that about a quarter of the way through the game, I found a really high stat weapon, and then I never mm-hmm. had cause to change it until the, until I had finished. At which point, I there existed a better weapon, but it would have required me to go into a post game mission, so I would have bother. Yeah, it's annoying when that happens in a game. I've had that happen in a few different games where it's like, okay, I'm in chapter three out of ten, and I already have the best weapon I can possibly get. <laughs> yeah. And it's just one of those things where it's like, I don't... Yeah, yeah like, like the, the issue is that it needs another access of customization. There's just not enough uh, things you can do outside of your battle chip deck, which is fun, but, you know, you need something else... Like there, you know, there needs to be something more for you to be able to customize about Mega Man, your battle loadout, something. And I'm given to understand Star Force Two and Three fixed that. Star Force Two apparently kind of sucks, but Three is apparently really good. And yeah, by the time Three came out, uh, the damage had been done. This Star Force One, I think I've mentioned before, it sold worse than Battle Network Six, but like not way worse. It was potentially capable of building its own fan base, but then Star Force 2 uh, completely stalled in sales, and it's seeming, seemingly its toxic reputation caused Star Force 3 to sell horribly. Uh, all, all I remember is that we never actually reviewed any of the Star Force games for the website. That's so weird. That's a little sad. Not surprising, but sad. Yeah, it's like something about the reputation preceded it even with the first one, and just, we never... I mean... I mean, we never had a review copy to begin with, I'm pretty sure, back in those days. I mean, this was about mm. a year or two before I joined. It was an old, uh, old DS game, and was, yeah. nobody was interested in playing it. Yeah, they just, they never really found, like, that, that's kind of the, the tale of, uh, of Star Force, is that they just sort of never found an audience, like... They had kind of a holdover audience from Battle Network because they look a lot like Battle Network and they function a lot like Battle Network, but they aren't Battle Network. So, like, that fandom rapidly left, but it never found a new one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, that's a bit of a shame. Like, it's it's a neat game and has some nice things about it. Uh, I think the new cast is pretty charming, actually. And, you know, it's a bit of a shame that it turned out the way that it did. Uh, I am amused that apparently they seemingly realized how fucked they were uh, partway through Star Force 3's development. Uh, mm-hmm. Because one of the, one of the uh, key plot elements of Star Force 1 is uh, the protagonist's missing dad. Like, that's... It's not just like, oh, his dad's missing and that's part of his life. It's like his dad went missing three years ago and he has been completely incapable of moving on since. Uh, Because his dad fucking went to space to try to befriend space aliens. And uh, in that process uh, was captured uh, by an alien attempting uh, that was like, that was so paranoid that it was like anyone that attempts to contact us is going to try to kill us. So I will annihilate them. Uh, and so, uh, like the, the, like 11th hour plot revelation is that, uh, so, so the gimmick of this one is that, uh, Mega Man is not a separate entity. Mega Man is the name of the, like, Mega Man's basically a very 
Common Rider y sort of, or Ultraman sort of Sentai hero, where it's like, oh, the combination of Geostellar, the protagonist, and this alien named Omega, uh, when they're when they're put together, they're called Nick. Uh, okay. I mean, but... that's not too different from stuff like Zex or yeah. some of the other subseries. Yeah, it, it, it's more that, like, Omega is a much more, like, much more of a character than the models in the Zex games. And that's partly because there's just a lot more dialogue, but, like, mm. uh, Omega and Geo both have, like, you know, obvious complementary arcs because Geo is uh, not an outgoing human being for uh, fairly defined reasons. And Omega is uh, a weird, rare male example of Sendere archetype. So that's the fun. That's the fun that you get with that. Um, but yeah, it's you know, it's actually you know, it's not an amazingly written game, but it's charming and it's like oh, these are, these are fun characters. I'd enjoy seeing more of them. Uh, but yeah, like that, you can tell that they knew that they're that the game was fucked because like the that the franchise as a whole was fucked because like one of the ongoing things is that like by the end of the game you find out that the reason that. Uh, Dio's dad disappeared rather than just uh, frankly being killed is that uh, Mega, Omega turned him into radio waves and sent him off into space uh, in the hopes that he would like find Earth on his own because that was the only way he was going to survive. Um, and uh, at the end of uh, Star Force 1, he's still floating out in space but uh, it, it's clear that that was not a plot arc that they intended to resolve uh, any time, like, bef essentially before the series was over. And then, like, last minute, apparently, at the end of Star Force 3, the game's just like, yeah, and he's back. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those things where it's like, ah, well, I mean, we're working on Star Force 4, but we don't think we'll get to finish Star Force 4, so... And they didn't. Yep, good uh, good instinct on their part. But yeah, it's a cute game. Uh, you know, decent 15, 20-ish hour RPG. Um, taking a break between Star Force 1 and 2, because even if Star Force 2's reputation was incredible, that's a lot of uh, fairly repetitive RPG to uh, play all at once. So Yeah, good call there. So what's next on your list? Uh, I have been... Let's see. What else have I done? Because I've done some other stupid shit. Um, let's see. We all? Okay. Oh, stupid shit. I have to talk to some about some stupid shit when you're done. Okay. <laughs> I forgot so about I that. Play, <laughs> I played a game of Wiley and Light's Rockboard That's Paradise, which is okay. a, a Famicom digital board game that's basically a variant of Monopoly. What the fuck? Based on based on Mega Man? Yeah, yeah, like Wiley and Light's Rockboard that's Paradise is a Mega Man uh, digital board game. I don't know uh, who that was meant to appeal to. It's one of the first spin-offs in the franchise actually. Uh, but yeah, uh, we have to live with just, that. Um, you said Famicom, right? Yeah. Yeah, that would be the time period where they were just making random spin-offs and sequels that were completely different genres just to see what would stick. Mm -hmm. 
it was yeah. it was very it was clearly very cheap. There's a there's a fan translation, uh, which like even though there's not a lot of text, it's useful to just uh, know what each what each menu item I'm uh, picking is. It's not a bad board game, but it is one of those things where it's like this is mostly just slightly weirder Monopoly. Um, like it's not as long as Monopoly. You're actually there is a, every character has a win condition where like essentially if you build enough hotels, that's basically how it functions. Uh, but there's there's some other like interest there's mildly interesting wrinkles to it. If you land on someone else's space, you're actually allowed to build on their space. Hmm. Uh, and so like uh, that means that they'll get most of the money when someone else lands on. Uh, space, but you'll get some, and you're building towards your goal of, uh, you know, you need to have X number of essentially hotels. So it's very, and of course, you can only build on a space you've landed on. So if you're just trying to land on your own spaces over and over, like it's, it's not going to go great. Um, there are the the chance cards have essentially been uh, limited down to a handful of player interaction effects, the most dangerous of which is Electman, because he just blows up one of the opposing player's buildings. But, yeah, so... There's there's some interest to it. Uh, if you are not a uh, Japanese child in, like, 1990, you probably don't need to play it, but I did it because I'm playing all of these loose ones. Um... <laughs> It's not. It's not terrible. It's not amazing. It's just one of those things where it's like, huh, interesting that you did that. Um, and it introduced a very obscure, horrible duck-looking creature called Reggae. So, <laughs> wasn't Reggae uh, more of a turkey in some of the later versions? Maybe he's got like a bill very explicitly in Rockford, which is why I thought duck. But yeah. He's, yeah. he's a few different kinds of bird. Um, then I played uh, Rockman Battle and Fighters, which is a... And it's more of a duck, you're right. Yeah. Mm. But uh, I played Rockman Battle and Fighters, which is a Neo Geo Pocket Color uh, sort of port of the two Mega Man arcade fighting games. Uh... I say fighting games, but they're basically boss rushes. Like, in terms of how they function, like, you pick Mega Man or Proto Man or base, and you fight old-school Mega Man bosses. Uh, but yeah, it's basically like a boss rush. And, I mean, it's it's cute for what it is. I mean, this it's a very strange product, because those two arcade games are already kind of strange, because they're single-player-focused, ostensibly fighting games. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, on in the arcade, they have the novelty of being designed to a spec somewhere between uh, Mega Man 7 and 8. Uh, but they're taking all of these robot masters from like Mega Man 1 through 3 or 4 through 6 and remaking them in that style and remixing all the music. You know, it, it's novel to see the higher fidelity assets and it's, it's a good fan service sort of uh, production. Neo Geo Pocket Color is essentially like competitive with a Game Boy Color in terms of power uh, 
So what you end up with is this very strange thing where they've taken these higher fidelity arcade games and ported them as faithfully as they could back to what amounts to an NES. <laughs> Which means that, like, Mega Man looks like NES Mega Man. He controls like Mega Man, uh, NES Mega Man. But he has random animation flourishes from this CPS-1 game. <laughs> and he, it looks extreme. It's extremely strange. And I don't, I don't even think it's bad, but it's weird. It's weird that they did that. But yeah, the, the one Neo Geo Pocket Color Mega Man game is a pseudo-remake of these two arcade fighting games. Um, it's better than the than either... It's better than either of the... Uh, any of the three... Uh, three Wonderswan Mega Man games. Uh, one of which is a absolutely horrendous... Uh, like sequel to Game Boy Mega Man 2 slash Mega Man and Base in very strange in a very strangely continuity heavy context. One of which is a Mega Man Battle Network platformer but not based off of the games, based specifically off of the anime. Uh, and the third of which is another game that I played this week that I am nowhere near done with because it is uh I believe I described it to someone as remarkably non-interactive. Uh, that is Mega Man Battle Chip Challenge, which is a... Oh, yeah, I played that one. Yeah, it's like a deck-building game, basically. Yep, and it's basically wind it up, see how it goes. Yep. You Like, there's even a point... Like, they, they realize how much time you're wasting, because one of the things that happens when you finish with your deck-building is that you have the option to ask your characters like Navi or like Mega Man or Gutsman or whatever, you ask them, hey, how is, how, what are my odds of winning? And they'll give you like, eh, like you're doing pretty well or you're sending me to die. Mm -hmm. And like, if you lose, the game just gives you the option to instantly start that fight again. Like it is absolutely aware that this is almost completely random once you have finished deck construction. There's no, uh, there's no meaningful interactivity point it's very strange um oh, yeah, the back. only the only really interesting thing i found with that game is it has one of the like, only the second female net navi yeah series. and it's based on ring man yeah they, they just called it ring but it's, it's based on ring man and it's one of the two two original characters for it is yeah. uh it's it's is the operator for ring.exe uh but yeah this is it's i mean it's it's weird because it's it's a hard game to like put a critical finger on by virtue of it's doing exactly what it intends i just don't think what it intends to do is interesting enough to sustain a whole price video game it isn't and i mean if you're like a big battle network lore nerd this is honestly one of the more interesting games because it lets you play as characters who, tip, who typically don't get to do things in the game stories like uh mail or uh especially in the latter games uh proto man's operator shop so like you get into the so it's like oh if you just want to see those characters doing things like it's, a, it's an excuse to do that 
Uh, it's one of the earliest games I can think of where Inti Creates logo is at the beginning in like a proper logo splash. Usually I think they were kind of buried in the credits. Uh, they developed a lot of Mega Man games, but um, that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, the other thing that's interesting to me is that it has a Wonderswan port, but it's a completely kneecapped Wonderswan port for some reason. Uh, they removed like half the battle chips and cut everyone's story except for protagonist's plan. So I don't know what happened. They came out around the same time. I have no idea why one of why the like on some level I understand why the one to one version is somewhat worse. I don't understand why it's like literally a fifth of the game that the original was. <laughs> and the original was already a very, very threadbare game. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that's something that I can't conservatively play because it simply isn't interesting enough. So it's just something I like. I, I throw on in the background of the curio while I'm doing other things, and occasionally I uh, win at it, and sometimes I don't. And it's hard to be terribly invested in any of the combat. <laughs> so yeah, one of, one of those weird. Uh, there, there are two games that I would describe as a reconstituted from uh, random battle network assets. And one of them is that, and the other is uh, Rockman Battle Network 4.5 Real Operation. And Real Operation is ironically more of a game. <laughs> and it's still kind of only barely a game. Uh, but yeah. So yeah, getting getting deep into the like the Mega Man games, no one has ever admitted to caring about. Uh, oh, and because it was on my list, I also played a bit of uh, official fan game Street Fighter Cross Mega. Oh, that game rules! Played that too. That was pretty fun. Yeah, that game's very cute. Uh, some of the some of the stage design is a little. Uh, I wouldn't even say bad so much as uh, funky. Like not even funky. Like some of it, I would I mean, describe clunky. As, but yeah. Oh yeah, I wouldn't say clunky. You know, there is some clunkiness, but the thing I would describe it as underdesigned. There's like not enough happening in some parts of it. But for yeah. for a fan game made essentially by one person, uh, it's it's a pretty good one. It's very cute. Uh, all of the uh, pixel art is adorable the uh zoom-ins every time that there is in one of the street fighter characters does an ultra move is incredibly funny uh getting getting murdered by an opponent when i have basically no health to start the boss fight and seeing the giant perfect on the screen because i got uh, i didn't manage to do damage before getting killed very funny um yeah, no, it's it's legitimately it's a very it's a neat little game, um, and it, all of the music remixes are really nice as well. Uh, I, I just remember um, if, if you look at the actual names for the sound the uh, sound files song files, mm -hmm. Giles' name is literally called "Goes with Everything." <laughs> nice, and that's actually going with, the, uh, okay. going with the old joke that that no matter what you actually set the music to any video it somehow fits the other the other thing that's fun about that is that 
Kyle is not actually a fighter in that game. Like, he's not one of the bosses, but there is a cheat that will activate his music on literally any level. Nice. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, and it yeah, fits it's, with everything. <laughs> it's, it's extremely funny. It's extremely cute. Um, and it's still it's still very available. It seems to have been put on the uh, uploaded to Internet Archive, like archive.org by Capcom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got it from the official Capcom website years ago and like two laptops ago, so I don't have access to it anymore. Yeah, it's still on the it's still on the Capcom website. They seem to put it on archive just to make sure that it would, like if they ever redesigned the site, it would still be available. Um, but yeah, very, very yeah, cute full game. Full hand blessing or full official blessing with it. Yeah, like like the the path that it took to what it became is kind of fascinating because it was like. It was being it was developed by and then I'm going to fail to pronounce his name properly. Phil uh, Jong Kui, uh, a Singaporean fan developer who was, uh, you know, just seemingly uh, beavering away at it for like three or so years, and then uh, at Evo 2012, uh, one of Capcom's like American VPs. Uh, was in attendance and he managed to get a meeting with them and showed it to that to that particular VP. They're, they've been they've left Capcom long ago, but it was Christian Spencer. But uh, basically, uh, showed it to them. He ran it up the chain, and they basically got permission to uh, make it in a, like a sort of official thing where Capcom. Uh, like gave him some amount of like actual funding, uh, and did like act, like QA on the game, uh, and allowed them to like properly officially distribute it via the Capcom website. And so you know, it's it a very cute thing too. It's a nice thing to have done. Uh, and it's it's got a lot of little like the the biggest issues that it had when it launched were things that like were immediate essentially immediately fixed uh the, the biggest one being that it didn't have a save system and uh in the version the the only version you're going to find if you're looking for it they the a save system was patched in that amusingly seems to use like exactly the same uh, save generation schema as Mega Man 2, so Mega Man 2 gen password generators work on Mega Man, Street Fighter Cross Mega Man. You just have to like work out how they've mapped each boss. But yeah, it's it very funny. Um, but yeah, it's it, you know it's, it's just a it's a great little uh, fan tribute, a labor of love. Uh, looks great and has a lot of great music that does a good job of combining. Uh, it, it, of combining the like music and graphical influences of Street Fighter and Mega Man, so still still worth tracking down. Still, you know, extremely extremely cheap to uh, extremely cheap by which I mean free. So, uh, and uh, even has a couple of secret bosses in the style of Street Fighter Four, where uh, if you mm -hmm. play the game well enough to get. Uh, four perfects on some of the bosses, which means that you have to finish the boss. <clears throat> finish the boss with full health. You can you can cheat this by uh, using an E tank right before you land the killing blow. But yeah, mm -hmm. of course. 
Yeah, but uh, if you get uh, four perfects in uh, the main stages, then when you're fighting M. Bison, when he gets to like low health, Akuma will come in and kill him, and you'll have to fight Akuma. And during the boss refights, if you get four perfects during those, you have to fight Sagat during the boss refights. Uh, it's a fun little game. A lot of, lot of good fan service for Street Fighter and Mega Man fans. I'm sorry. Count myself as both at this point. Comes recommended. So yeah, there, there's your Mega Man 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. I've, I've got a password halfway through Street Fighter Cross Mega Man, so playing more of that probably tomorrow or something. Yeah. Uh, we also have an announcement you wanted to talk about playing? Fallon Wonderlords. Oh, God. I bought a terrible <laughs> game on the cheap. That tends to be the case. Yes. And it would... And I have played a little bit of it. It's not the worst, but it feels like some bizarre, like, abandoned Sega Saturn game ported to a new yeah. system rather than a game developed a few years ago. <laughs> it's weird. And yeah. And Yuji Naka's been having an extremely normal one on Twitter for the past few days. Oh god, what's going on now? So, uh, recently there was a celebration of Nights into Dreams, like, 20-something anniversary, probably around 25th of the stage. Uh, and so he posted a photo of the development team with a cons with a very conspicuous uh, alteration to the photo. Huh. He blanked out uh, Naoto Shima's face. Wow. He, uh, he was, I forget if, trying to work out what his actual credit is on Nights into Dreams, just so I can point out how ridiculous that is. So I'm looking up. Okay, Nights into Dreams credits list Oshima as uh, the game's director. <laughs> huh. Yuji Naka producer, director, not Oshima. Uh, so those who are keeping score will remember that uh, Naoto Oshima uh, the, Naoto Oshima was one of the other people working on Balan Wonderworld. One of the people that allegedly uh, argued in favor of taking Yuji Naka off the project uh, approximately six months before its uh, completion. And thus is currently one of the people that uh, is directly on Yuki Naka's shit list. Uh, so basically, he posts this like, hey, 20, 25, 26 years of nights, here's an image, here's, here's like the original development team. I, I, and you know, just posts this picture as though it's normal, but it's like he's just blanked out of Naoto Oshima's face. And. Uh, when people start pointing out what he's done on Twitter, he immediately, uh, like, he uses a feature on Twitter that allows you to make it so that, uh, to hide replies, basically. Like, 
uh, you can make it so that people can't see the replies unless they really go digging into the, uh, not, not even just all replies, but specific replies. You can, the, the person who's made the tweet they're responding to can hide specific replies so that they can't be seen unless you specifically go looking for them. And then also just blocking them. So he just goes on this like rampage of blocking anyone who points out that he blanked out Naoto Oshima's face. And uh, before doing so, of course, uh, that's all of their replies to be hidden. So uh, like just this absolutely bizarre uh, thing to spend your time doing at any stage of your life. But yeah, uh, so so he seems like he's still pissed, just putting that one out there. But uh, he, he's been like yelling on Twitter all week about like, uh, imagine how I felt when I found out that these people were talking behind my back, and it's like, man, if I if I had had like a working relationship with someone for over 20 years, and they were arguing that I need to be taken off the project, and they were hardly the only person. In fact, there were like a dozen people making that argument. I would be wondering what the fuck I had been doing instead of <laughs> claiming that they were talking behind my back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just going to guess the fact that the game is not the worst thing I've ever played. It's fun in spots. has nothing to do with him. <laughs> I'm going to... I am going to bring up that, like, one of the weird things about this whole thing has been that uh, li listening to people discover for the first time that Yuji Naka is infamously a dick. Yeah. Uh, for, for those who don't keep up with their, like, uh, dumb old game industry dramas, uh, so former Xbox Microsoft executive Peter Moore uh, spent a fairly, you know, a, a fair bit of time at Sega once upon a time. Uh... <laughs> Like, I think he was in the Dreamcast era, but I'm just happy. But basically, like, you know... Um, I just want to make sure that I... Yeah, so... Uh, he was uh, at Sega of America for a few years. Uh, like, he was there for the Dreamcast. Uh, you know, so he was, he was that kind of guy. Um, like that era of Sega. And there is a uh, infamous story uh, that I'm going to relate uh, for, for the sake of accuracy and to say that I have not fabricated any part of this story. Uh, I'm going to bring up the story that preceded his leaving Sega. So he's giving a present to set the stage, he's giving a presentation about where Sega is in the market. He's like made this video that's like explaining to various Sega executives, this is what people think of Sega, this is what we need to be aware of, and like as our marketing messaging needs to be combating this perception. Because this is like this is damaging to our brand. We need to stop this. It says, I need to be incredibly aware of. Uh, I we need to be incredibly aware of the challenges we face as a brand of Sonic. You know? So I play the video. Yuji Naka, Naka-san, maker of Sonic, is in the room. Now he and I have a love-hate relationship on a good day, and we show him this, and it's subtitled in Japanese. When it comes to when it comes to uh, these various like quotes of like people talking, you know, kind of bad mouthing Sega about like what they think about him, like 
he slams it, Naka slams his hand on the table and shouts, this is ridiculous. You have made them say this. Sega is a great brand. Nobody would ever say this. You have falsified it. He just gets in my face. So I said to the translator, tell him to fuck it on. And the poor guy looks at me and says, there's no expression in Japanese. I said, I know there is. And that was it. That was the last time I ever said what there. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, one of, one of my favorite, <laughs> one of the most incredible stories about uh, anyone leaving any company ever. And it's fucking Peter Moore talking about how he left Sega because he had, uh, because he had been screamed at by Yuki Naka and then told his translator to tell Yuki Naka to fuck off. That's pretty great. For for reference, I think something that he could have said would be like "zakendayo," uh, <laughs> which, if you, I mean, if you stretched out to the proper actual grammar, it's "fuzakenaiade," which is mm-hmm. "stop messing around." Mm-hmm. But if you shorten it just enough, where you you kind of lose the "fu" at the start, and you shorten the negative to just "in," so "zaken." Mm-hmm. Or um, Zakendayo. It, it's pretty close to telling somebody to, to f off. <laughs> yeah, um, it's one of the, it's one of those statements. that's like the the sheer amount that you're abbreviating it shows like a like an irritation of the other person. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, I gotta jump off for a little bit. Uh, if you're ready to go to sleep before I come back, feel free to just bounce. Okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah, like I, yeah, the, the things I learned from reading street punk dialogue and manga. <laughs> yeah, like uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of Japanese you could throw out that would not necessarily mean fuck off, but would indicate fuck off. But yeah, I can see why someone who is being paid to translate a uh, business meeting is not immediately going to be like, yeah, I'll throw that out there. <laughs> But yeah, Naka is uh, prickly to say the least. Uh, to to go a bit into his actual history, uh, Naka quit Sega right after Sonic One. Um, they he was lured back to the company on the basis of joining Sega Technical Institute in North America. Uh, that. Seem to recall also like some sort of expensive car changed hands as an, as a result of that as well. Uh, but basically, uh, he he quit almost immediately after Sonic One, feeling he was undervalued. Uh, goes to Sega Technical Institute, Sega Technical Institute uh, to work on Sonic Two and ultimately Sonic Three. Uh, Sega Technical Institute. Originally, uh, the Sonic 2 team comprises like a mix of American and Japanese developers. I believe by Sonic 3, it's basically just all Japanese developers inexplicably working in California. But uh, yeah, like it's just one of those things where it's like uh, there, there's the infamous story of the uh, of Sonic Extreme on the uh, Saturn, where like the in an effort to get the game out the door. Uh, like a Sega of America head approves the use of uh, approves the team to use the Nights in the Dreams engine in order to like try and get the game the game's technology stable so that they can just make the damn game because there's still not a Sonic game and it's like late nineteen it's like nineteen ninety seven by that point. Uh, Naka throws an absolute fucking fit at the fact that the 
the fact that this has happened and the authorization to use that engine is called they have to like drastically uh try to make uh an engine exist that does not use any nice into dreams code and uh the programmer nearly kills himself and the game ends up getting canceled uh not not an active deliberate attempted suicide just like he's work he's overworking like 16 hour days over and over and over um yeah so that's yeah death by overwork yeah, yeah basically working himself to death trying to get it happening the game the game gets killed it's you know it's an infamous failure the the story of sonic extreme is well documented and you would be, uh anyone interested would be uh best off looking it up but uh then there is the story that came out earlier this year maybe late last year that was uh the story of there was a dreamcast uh there's a Dreamcast sort of Star Fox 64 looking kind of game that was shown at E3 and it was previewed a whole bunch. It was apparently clear, uh, close to finished and then mysteriously was never released. No one ever commented on it until uh, like fairly recently where one of the developers said the reason the game had ended up getting cancelled is that uh, late in its development uh, they were, uh, Naka had come to survey the technology. He was a big wig at Sega at the time, so like that was kind of part of his responsibilities. And he, speaking in Japanese, assuming that none of these Americans could understand what he was saying, uh, was commenting on the engine, saying, oh, this is impressive. Take this, uh, we want this technology for Sonic. Uh, take, uh, I want you, and essentially uh, gives the instruction of when the game ships, uh, fire everyone except one programmer who knows how the engine works and bring him over to the Sonic team so he can integrate parts of the uh, technology into the Sonic Adventure engine. And yeah, uh, that yeah, did not. That's not good management. Yeah, that did not engender loyalty. He did it. Uh, he said it in Japanese, assuming that no one could understand him. Some of the team members <laughs> did speak. Some of the team members did speak enough Japanese to know what he was saying, and uh, you know, word got around the team, and a bunch of them were like, "Well, if my job's over once this project is done, I better get a new job now, not later." So, every like the entire programming staff is gone in like a month. It's like there's no point staying here. It's like mm -hmm. this is this is not worth that. And so the game ends up getting cancelled because no one understands its tech the underlying technology of it anymore. Uh, so yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this is basically just the latest in a long string of, oh yeah, that guy is uh, a genius and also seemingly utter hell to work with. These two things do not off um, are quite often um, what's the right word here, comorbid. Yeah, comorbid, consanguine, depending upon how kind you're being. No, comorbid. Let's go with that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so, you know, just one of those things. But, uh, well, it wasn't surprising to find out that this would end in another pile of burned bridges. Uh, uh, let's hit, like, a question or two. Uh, that is the nominal uh, point of the whole uh, affair. Yep. Uh, let me see if I can. Uh, 
Okay, that seems to be the right one. Yeah. Uh, uh, here's one that we can all have fun with. Are there uh, many games you remember you remember as being good, but were actually bad when you went to replay them? I mean, there have been quite a few where I went back to play them, and it's like, oh, yeah, I can see why this seemed really awesome when I didn't know a lot of games. Mm -hmm. And a couple of these I'm probably going to get um, shouted at for later. <laughs> but um, the first thing that comes to mind was playing Final Fantasy VI on the Game Boy SP. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, I mean, if if you're like me and you retain plot material for decades after actually playing the game at times and and you end up just replaying the game just for the gameplay the gameplay does not really cut it there's just there's, yeah there's, there's not a lot there uh, especially yeah. compared to yeah. like its immediate predecessor um yeah it yeah, it doesn't. Um, the characters attempt to have individuality, but don't have a lot of depth to it. They try to have a mix and match, but then they make it possible to give everyone everything all the time for magic. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a lot. I mean, literally everyone has a different subsystem for special abilities, but a lot of them were not very well thought out or interesting. Or some of them, like, barely exist. So you get stuff like, and oh, there's three magic so in here, there's, bugged. like, 12 of them. <laughs> some of them are so bugged that they will destroy the game. Literally destroy the game. Yeah, yeah, you can... Them. Yeah, Sketchbug can absolutely destroy a Super Nintendo cartridge. <laughs> I think I mean, they... Not, they not just your game save, but the actual yeah. ROM. Yeah, like, it somehow... It does something that corrupts the ROM itself, and it's just like, oh my god, what happened? <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, so yeah, I mean, certainly back in 1996, Final Fantasy VI was awesome. Hmm. And I do not begrudge anyone who still thinks it's awesome and they play it regularly. I know Max Storm used to play it every year. Yeah, I know but, a lot of people like that. And if you're playing for the story, I can imagine that because it's got a fairly decent story, has some interesting beats. But again, <laughs> I don't forget story that much. I can still. I mean, give me a piece of paper. I could probably outline the entire plot of this game mm. from memories of 1996. Mm. And um, it, it takes a lot for me to not remember much about a game after I've played it, which is why I'm still surprised I've actually played Brain Lord. <laughs> because I really, I barely remember you anything about the game. Somehow did manage that to has forget everything about games. it. Yes. It's like, occasionally I'm reminded that the game exists. I'm like, wait, I actually did play that. Why don't I remember anything about it? Um, I can remember stuff about Lagoon, and I never played the first level of that game. <laughs> uh, I, I can remember wacky stuff about Robotrek. Everyone loves slapstick. <laughs> yeah, I was like Robotrek. Why was there? Why was there a time travel subplot for one section of that game that? had the main effect of you actually being in the group photo on your pre on your school principal's desk. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Something to do. <laughs> why? 
Uh, why is the Count a vampire? I really don't know why. It's about as big a mystery as to why they actually spell his name four different ways in the game's English translation. <laughs> I mean, seriously, somebody really, really... Uh, they really needed a good translation or localization editor to go over the English translation of that game because putting somebody's katakana name into four different romanizations in four different parts of the game is a bad sign. Um, but... Um, but yeah, just to make a point, yes, um, Final Fantasy VI did not age well for me specifically because the one thing that really made it set, um, stand out is the one thing that I am never going to forget anyway. So it's never going to be new to me again, and it just doesn't. There's just not a lot to it other than that. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of other Super Nintendo era games are not like that. I mean, I do enjoy Final Fantasy II and five, or four and five. It's because the subsystems work better in many ways. Um, and um, even the Saga games, like, great for replay value. I mean, those are going to be a little different every time. Yeah. But, yeah. Just that one. Um, I mean, it's, I mean the, the PlayStation Final Fantasies had the same issue for me. Mm. So... I tried to replace 7, 8, and 9 at one point, and I just really couldn't. It's also very long. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 13 would probably hit me the same way if I actually bothered. Yeah, that's that's an extreme. Especially those first, like, 11 chapters. Those are going to be exactly the same. Yeah, we, I mean, we've discussed the novel style. Mm. Uh, Number the of novel times, yeah. style of narration, uh, narrative flow there. Mm. So... Oddly enough, Chrono Trigger, great every single time. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, to to a certain extent, if we're going to compare these to books, that's like rereading like a your favorite page turner. It's like, yeah, I know what's yeah. going to happen, but it's fun to have it happen. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I mean, even the Secret of Mana, which I can look back and say objectively that the two player was not that great, even though it was excellent at the time, mm-hmm. I can still enjoy it. Hmm. Which is why I'm really true. looking forward to Trinity Trigger coming up. Oh months, yeah, but... that is coming. Yeah. Oh yeah, we didn't discuss this, but uh, there's a <laughs> there's a Valkyrie profile spinoff coming this year for some reason. Yeah, and, and from what I've heard, it's I mean, there's arguments over whether or not it actually looks good or not. Some people thinking it's probably worth a try. It'll probably, like, the way I would describe it is that it looks fine, but it looks generic, which is, like, the opposite of what I want out of a Valkyrie game. True. But it looks like it will be perfectly fine to play. <laughs> but it also comes out, like, two weeks before Star Ocean 6, which is also a weird thing to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Valkyrie Elysium notably not being developed by Triace, which explains some things. Yeah, but, yeah so. just just thought that deserved uh, being mentioned that that game existed, um, and that they had finally given it a release date of late September. Um, I I'm just waiting for Square Enix to decide to port the remake of Blue Sphere to anything else. Yeah, that'd be nice. I I would purchase that. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious. I'd just be curious to see how it works in a remade version. 
because it, it would probably be a little less janky at times, and it would be kind of fun to see. Everything I've seen of like the cell phone remake of Blue Sphere made it look like they kind of tried to make the combat more like Star Ocean 2. Yeah. I mean, the Game Boy Color game was really good, and I'm saying that realizing that it's been literally six years since I played it. <laughs> I, I mean, quite literally six years, because I remember playing it while I was waiting for my wife to go through the OR, the night of July 8th, 2016. Um, yes. I can't believe uh, that yeah, that would stick out in your mind. Forget, very hard for me to forget that particular evening. Funny how that works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can, yeah, that was even better considering I had five classes the next day. Oh, no way to come the manager. Yeah, you must have oh, no, been empty by the end of that. Oh, I mean, I got an hour and a half of sleep, got to the school, like, earlier than everyone else, managed to meet the manager at the door, explain exactly what just happened the night before, and he managed to um, reschedule all but the first two classes, and then he bought me a Red Bull instead of a cigar because he figured, you know, I don't smoke and I needed the caffeine. But it was the only Red Bull I have ever drunk. Desperate times call for desperate measures. I somehow survived that morning. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of anything in regards to this question that immediately comes to mind because, like, usually, like if I go back and play something, like I might be less enamored of it than I once was, but I'm usually, uh, I usually find something new to appreciate about games. That I'm choosing to go back and replay. And so there's nothing that's immediately coming to mind where it's like, oh, I thought this was really good, but it turns out that it's really bad. It's one of those situations where it's like, there's some things where I'll go back and it's like, yeah, that doesn't pull my interest anymore. But, you know, like I have different appreciations for them rather than like, I don't like this anymore. Yeah. Oh, I mean, okay, Final Fantasy Legend 3 as well. Oh. <laughs> Except that, that was like after the third playthrough, I just finally realized why I was getting so bored with the end game. Yeah. Which is why I really appreciate the DS remake. <laughs> but... Yeah. The good kind of remake uh, reignites the feelings you had when you first played the game. Yeah. Which reminds me, I really need to replay those games again. Mm. I don't replay games very often, but I do replay the sagas. Hmm. So... Uh, I can hit a couple more since they're related questions. Uh, do people have two roads uh, two into the view of the Game Boy? I question if there are a lot of uh, people who could stand the screen with four shades gray and a few green background. Uh, certainly, I think most people don't remember playing the aren't, aren't thinking of playing the brick Game Boy. They're probably thinking of playing the pocket, which is not as uh, not as green and has a less horrible passive dot matrix screen. Uh, hey, I, I had I played my original Game Boy until the back of the controller started le leaking electricity from the batteries and getting sending my fingers. That's concerning. That's no, I mean, it took a good it took a good fifteen years for it to actually end up like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I would imagine that a lot of people's memories are of these slightly nicer uh, upgrades, which helps. Um, but, at the same time, it's like, um, 
the game designers on the, the original Game Boy did some in, incredibly insane things with a like a literally a three or two and a half tone color palette and a four tone sound system. Yeah. All things considered, uh -huh. um, the limitations were brought forth some really cool experiments in layering, shading, and um, tonal harmonics where they were doing their best to make you think you heard notes that couldn't actually be produced by the <laughs> by the speakers. Hmm. So the other, the other thing I would say about Game Boy games and part of the reason that there's a certain uh, vogue for uh, them would be that uh, Game Boy games, like the good ones, were some of the first games that had to be designed around raw convenience. Yeah. Um, in like, a way uh, that. Okay. Keep going, keep going. No, well, I was going to say, in a way that, like, console games at the time weren't, because they did not, like, you know, console games were trying to get longer, but they were also, in many ways, becoming more obtuse. And so a lot of Game Boy games, because they, uh, if they wanted to be long, they needed to let you save a lot. And if they wanted to, if they were, weren't going to be long, they needed to be uh, very pick-up-and-play, because they couldn't guarantee the player was going to play them for more than 10 minutes. And yeah. so they can be easier to go back to than corresponding console games at the time. I, I just remember Final Fantasy Legend 1 was specifically designed to be playable on a, on a one-way trip from Tokyo to Honolulu. Hmm. They took the average flight time between, from, between Narita and, and Honolulu Airport and said, hmm. this is what we are aiming for in length for an RPG. Hmm. And that's a remarkable sense of restraint. No, it's also, they also figured out exactly how much memory they had to work with, which was barely enough to ma manage this. <laughs> yeah, which also explains some other curious uh, aspects of that game. But, oh, the first and the yeah. second one, both the uh, complete lack of central plot line. Yep. yep. But yeah, it's one of those things like, uh, you know, Game, game Boy games are that we're going like the good Game Boy games tended to require a lot of lateral thinking about how to make the game function, and that uh, produces a lot of things that are people people are very fond of, especially in an era where uh, a lot of developers have, uh, you know, especially in the AAA market, have shot headlong into the uh, there is no problem that should not cannot and should not be uh, sorted out by throwing more technology and more people. Which can work up to a point, but it can also cost you a ton of money and diminishing returns. And also just guarantees that your your design has to get safer and safer over time. Like, so. yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the Hollywood effect. Mm -hmm. It's like some of the most conservative, literally conservative people on the planet are Hollywood producers because they're putting a lot of money into some of these projects and they want to make sure that they succeed. Yep. So... Uh... Yeah, so you end up with a conservative this, this... in the risk aversion meaning of the word. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of those situations where, like, uh, you know, Game Boy games with their tendency towards being uh, weird, bite-sized, and uh, vaguely experimental and relatively convenient given their vintage, 
uh, are all things that allow people to look past the hardware, especially given that uh, many, if not most, people who are going back to play old Game Boy games are not playing them on original Game Boy hardware. Almost certainly not, no. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I used to describe Link's Awakening as the, like the archetypal indie game. Mm-hmm. I mean, because even though it is it is a first um, first party game on a Nintendo platform, it was also made by a bunch of guys in their free time because they wanted to see if they could actually port Link to the Past to the Game Boy. Yeah, it's even indie down to and its it, tendency to be rever- referential. <laughs> yep, which is how it ended up with references to Yoshi and Kirby and all sorts of other things, and. As I recall the story, eventually they decided, you know what, we actually have a completely different game on our hands now. Should we actually tell somebody about this? And so they ended up approaching their boss at Nintendo <laughs> saying, yeah, we kind of we kind of made this new game in our free time <laughs> just to see if we could. <laughs> you want us to like finish it completely and then see where it goes? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Which is, again, which is why I describe it as like the archetypal indie game. It was never planned. It was never, um, I mean, they never had any focus groups or anything to decide whether or not this game was ever wanted. Mm-hmm. It was just a bunch of guys playing around in their free time and making something and going, oh, this is cool. Mm. That gives it a fun freewheeling spirit. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm, I'm certain that there were quite a few other Game Boy games that somehow started in a similar manner. I just don't know the stories of any of those. Um, yeah, it's it's just one of those things where it's like when a, when development costs are that cheap and development times are that low on Game Boy projects, it's like yeah, probably a fair few games sort of happen because someone's like, can I? <laughs> and I mean, I imagine that's also why the the Game Boy res- still resonates a lot with the indie gaming community and the indie developers is just because it's that's very much that same design philosophy at times. Hmm. It's like spiritual ancestry. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, to round out the Game Boy questions, which will probably be where we stop ourselves for tonight. Um, how many people had the Super Game Boy back when it came out? I can't find solid sales numbers, but I know I have. I had one too, but I also didn't have a Super Nintendo when it first came out. I got one in 98. <laughs> uh, and I got the I'm not sure exactly sure when I got the game Super Game Boy Color or Super Game Boy but I did have one and I did play the old Meg Man World games on it so yeah I mean that's like that was that was one of those things where it's like yeah I mean like you know it's, it's just a convenient way to play these on a larger screen I mean a lot of them were good enough that you might want to be able to do that sometimes so Super Game Boy hardware is fascinating because it uh, actually doesn't run at the right speed. <laughs> doesn't? It, it runs like 2% faster than it's supposed to, so just faster enough that most people will never notice, but slightly faster. Um, which is why in Japan, in 1998, they released the Super Game Boy 2. Which was which included a link port, which the original Super Game Boy lacked, and uh, fixed the speed issue. Let's see, yeah, it says that it runs at two point four percent faster than proper Game Boy. 
uh, which is an artifact of aspects of the uh, the way that the Super Game Boy originally worked was that it involved uh, running. Uh, it involved like aspects of how the uh, clock speed of Super NES's processor worked. Uh, so it like divides the clock speed by a certain uh, by five, and that gets it close to the Game Boy, but not quite uh, exactly right. It's like 4.295 megahertz instead of 4.194 megahertz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that uh, that was fixed for the Super Game Boy Two by all accounts, which you know, extremely niche, uh, Japan only. But yeah, there's a. There's like, Imagine being the person who was like champion of the bit for a Super Game Boy 2 in 1998. There it was. One of my favorite things about the uh, Super Game Boy, though, is that uh, there is kind of an N64 Super Game Boy, but it was only used for uh, development purposes. Uh, It was used as like an internal thing called the Wide Boy. And there's like photographs of what this object looked like. It was apparently constructed by intelligent systems. Uh, but yeah, the wide boy was used to for development uh, of Game Boy and Game Boy Advance uh, games. And it's it's a weird, funky looking N64 cartridge. It's extremely tall for some reason. But yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's just two people who apparently both had Super Game Boys, but I can't find any sort of uh, claim about how many units the Super Game Boy actually sold. But it seems to have sold fairly well because they were deciding that they could make a revision of it in 1998. So uh, yeah, that's um, one of those things where it's like it, it also it was not an expensive object. I think it was like. 60 bucks, which, you know, not cheap, but, you know, not something that you were uh, breaking the bank getting. Uh, and that's if you were getting it new at retail price, which I think a lot of people probably weren't. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that mostly covers uh, what we were, what we have time for because it was very late. Uh, so, uh, Gaijin, if you want to uh, do a bit of plugging before we go. Oh, yes. Okay, so, uh, so sitting right here in my uncomfortably warm apartment with the fan going in the background, sorry if you can hear that, um, <laughs> I'm just looking at my dashboard and saying that at least somebody is enjoying reading through Princesses of the Pizza Parlor on Kindle Unlimited as they have read 172 pages in the last three days. Yay. Um, Oh yeah. They actually left a review on the first episode. So I'm like, I'm very happy. Yeah. (laughs) So um, please, please be more like this lady, everybody. Okay. So please be more like uh, Miss, uh, what was her name here? Miss Mary Grace of I Do Not Know Where, but probably the United States, who 
who is kind enough to continue reading my series after the first episode and has left at least one so far review. Please be more like her. Uh, Princesses of the Pizza Parlor on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited by Michael Yarimizu, Y-A-R-I-M-I-Z-U, is a is what would you would get if somebody decided to do a let's or an action play podcast in narrative prose format um, before such podcasts actually existed. <laughs> yes, this uh, writing this thing actually pr- the writing of this series actually predates Critical Role by about six months. Um, I have yet to actually see an episode of the show, <laughs> but. <laughs> So if you enjoy watching this kind of, or listening to this kind of podcast, if you get a vicarious thrill from other people's bad dice rolls and poor personal decisions, and if you would like to support your local gaijin, please check them out. Um, Preferably for purchase, but just reading them on Kindle Unlimited, I still get a kickback on this. Hmm. So... Um, yeah, so again, Princess, uh, Princesses of the Pizza Parlor, there are nine episodes, two side quests, and a paralogue that is probably longer than it should have been, but hey, I was kind of living it up at the time. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's a good, let's see here, ballpark figure of 500,000 words of text, or about half of a Trails, um, Trails series video game. So if you can play one of those, you can read through all this. Go ahead, go for it. Uh, let t- please tell me how you th- what you think of it later. Okay, bye bye. Wheels isn't here, but I will uh, promote that uh, you can watch him stream usually things that are like battle royale shooters uh, every so often on his Twitch channel, Twitch.tv/askwheels. Uh, I believe we'll, uh, we, you know, we do the shenanigans streams every Sunday night, uh, usually around 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern. Uh, so those are those are always a good time. Usually a preview of what we'll end up rambling about on the podcast. Uh, if you want to listen to us report, record the podcast, you can find us on Wednesday nights, usually around 9 p.m. Pacific, uh, midnight Eastern. Uh, and typically, uh, typically on Ask Wheels, twitch.tv slash Ask Wheels and twitch.tv slash RPGamer. Uh, you can ask us questions via the chat. You can ask us questions via the RPGamer Discord. Uh, if you haven't joined the Discord, you can uh, join it by going to rpgamer.com and clicking the community tab and then get you a Discord invite. And even if you don't want to ask us questions, that is always a pleasant place to hang around and chat about your favorite RPGs or quite a few other things if you're really looking for it. Uh, it's a it's a lovely little community. It's definitely a nice place to uh, have some of your online haunts be. But yeah, uh, and of course you can also leave us questions underneath the uh, most recent episode from the comments section. Not many people do that anymore, but. It's always welcome if they choose to. Uh, let's see. What else to say? What else to say? I swear there's something else I'm forgetting. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, and thank you to Fireminer for the questions that we answered today. Uh, if you want me to never speak of Yujinaka again, please press 1. But otherwise, see you, Space Cowboys. Mm-hmm.